going to slightly modify the reading of the last verse, verse 15. Uh, that is modified the New American Standard Translation. It might be the way your version, if it's different, uh, reads, but I'm modifying New American Standard here. This is the Word of God. He wrote it uh, through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Actually, Jesus wrote it. He is the Word of God uh, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, and so it uh, is has no errors in it. It's not possible that there can be errors in the original uh, languages in which it was given, uh, and in this case, uh, Greek, and it remains to us the authoritative word of God. So listen reverently to him as he speaks to you. Starting in verse 9 of First Timothy 2. Actually, I'll start in verse 8. Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But she shall be preserved, excuse me, but she shall be saved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Amen. Be seated. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we, or Jesus, you who are the great preacher of the church and uh, the great prophet, I should say, and preacher, uh, through, we pray uh, that you would speak today afresh through us, uh, through myself. Uh, to all of us. But Lord Jesus, we uh, need your help at all times in this point in the the service, but um, we all particularly need your help uh, this day because of the nature of this sermon. I especially, um, Lord, would you help me to not say a word that is contrary to what is true, uh, that is in accordance with what you say here, but also to not... um, uh, leave anything out that is true, that is important to say with respect to this passage. Would you please give us all grace to hear uh, and uh, to bow the knee uh, to you, our King, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen. Kids, I'm going to remind you of the uh, uh, children's illustration from last week because it's so appropriate. I just decided to remind you. Uh, uh, because this is, you may recall, the second part of a two-part sermon. The sermon is based on this text, verses 9 through 15, and that uh, one sermon should be devoted to this text because that's the way the text is designed. 
That's a, it's a preaching passage and it's a contained unit and therefore one, one sermon should be, uh, uh, written from it and preached from it. But because of the length of both points, uh, it's a two-part single sermon. Last part was last week, which you're going to get a brief synopsis of here in a moment. Uh, and the second part of that one sermon is today's, uh, uh, second point, which I will be coming uh, spending most of our time on in our time here together. But let me remind you, children, of uh, uh, the question I asked uh, last week, and that was, have you ever played a game with other children in which each child plays a different role? I gave as an example last week, cops and robbers. Uh, those are two major roles. Some kids are cops and some kids are robbers. And when that game is played, cowboys and Indians, not politically correct anymore, but some children may still play that game, um, and so on. Uh, but where different people take different roles, uh, either as a cop or as a robber, that kind of thing. Well, God himself has assigned differing roles, different roles for different people to play in life. And specifically for men and women, or more accurately, males and females. God has different roles for men and males and females, uh, including you boys and girls, uh, in the church and in the home as well. Now this passage deals just with the church, but it has greater application to the home uh, and is related to instruction regarding the home uh, that comes uh, in the other portions of Paul's writings, including Titus uh, and, uh, and other places as well in Paul's writings and elsewhere in the scriptures. Um, and this passage speaks of the roles of men and women in the church. But this is, as I mentioned last week, one of the most politically incorrect sermons I have ever preached. And perhaps today is even more politically correct than last week was. So, again, brace yourself. Um, it's very politically incorrect because the text is very politically incorrect. You could probably tell when I read it. Ooh, a lot of people wouldn't agree with this, who walk, uh, who we interact with and uh, who we see uh, on television, uh, if you uh, are watching television much or at all. Um, last week, I mentioned the first point, and only the first point, and it was this. What Christ, the head of the church requires of Christian women within the church setting. That's what we looked at last week, what Christ as the head of the church requires of Christian women within the church setting. Um, and today we're going to look at what Christ, the head of the church, requires of Christian men within the church setting. That's today. But before we do, I want to remind you of some of the major salient points that I made last week when I talked about what Christ requires of Christian women within the church setting. First, we learned that Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, remember Jesus is the Word of God. He is, he is the, it is His Spirit by which the Apostles and the Prophets uh, spoke and wrote. And um, Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, uh, in this passage, verse 9 in particular, is requiring Christian women to dress modestly and discreetly and at all times, but his particular emphasis here is during church gatherings in a church setting, that women are to dress this way. This is appropriate for women uh, who claim Christ as their 
Savior and Lord, to dress uh, in a particular way, modestly and discreetly. And I unpacked that a little bit last week. Uh, to dress in such a manner uh, is to dress in a way that reflects selfless, not selfish, selfless concern for the spiritual and moral well-being of others who would look at the way we dress and what is and isn't covered when we dress. Uh, we need to, uh, as Christians, we need to uh, dress, in, and this applies to men, by the way, uh, as well. But again, the focus of the text is on women. But that reflects selfless concern for others. Also, we are to clothe ourselves in a manner that isn't likely to gross out or offend others. We shouldn't be wearing clothing that's unbecoming, if you will. Um, and also, this implies modest and dis- modesty and discretion implies that we are to dress outwardly uh, in a manner that reflects what a Christian is supposed to be inwardly. Christians are required. We are required as God's people to walk in humility, to be humble people who, uh, who don't think the world revolves around us. We are to be people who are considerate of others, who think of the needs of others uh, as much as, if not more, than our own. We're required to do that. And our dress should reflect that kind of mentality or those kinds of attributes. Um, by the way, I noted last week that it was the excess and the sensuality that elaborate adornment uh, that women often engaged in suggested to the people of Paul's day. It's that excess and sensuality that was being for, is being forbidden in this passage, verse, verse uh, uh, 9 in particular there. That's what's being forbidden by Paul and by Christ through him, not braids per se or gold jewelry or costly or pearls or even costly garments. That's not the point. The point is what those things, uh, that kind of adornment uh, indicated to people who looked in Paul's day at women who were, who were dressed that way. And he's like, he's like saying that's inappropriate for Christian women. Uh, but again, not, not per se gold or pearls and so on. What Christ wants Christian women rather to focus on, to focus the vast majority of their time and attention on, is adorning themselves with good works rather than with fancy, elaborate, uh, splashy uh, uh, things, adornments, we'll call it that. So that's the first thing that we learned last week in the passage. Another thing that we learned uh, that the Lord Jesus in this passage forbids is he is forbidding Christian women to provide men with religious instruction in a mixed-gender church setting. It's off-limits. Let a woman receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. And that's a reference to in the church, in a church setting, uh, a corporate, mixed uh, gender church setting. Uh, So, by the way, as I also mentioned last week, that's not a blanket prohibition uh, of all religious teaching by women, but it is, and, and the fact that it's not a blanket prohibition of such teaching is clear from other places in Scripture where the Lord permits women to provide religious instruction to other women, uh, to younger children, including male children, and also even to men, think of Priscilla, in private conversations. All that's permitted. 
That's not what the text is dealing with. It's dealing with public, corporate, church-gathering uh, uh, church events, if you will, mixed-gendered uh, mixed church events. Um, and then finally, not only does did he, uh, do we see that Christ forbids women to teach uh, religious content to men, um, but the passage also, as I just read, Jesus forbids Christian women to exercise spiritual leadership authority over men in a church uh, situation, a church setting. So that's what we looked at last week under the heading of what Christ, the head of the church, requires of Christian women. But today we're looking at what Christ, the head of the church, requires of Christian men in the, within the church setting. Uh, and the first thing that the text indicates, uh, and this is by implication, by the way, in verses 11 and 12, is he requires men, and men alone, to do the teaching in such situations. Now, this is rather obvious, isn't it? Um, if he doesn't allow women to do it, who does he allow to do it? Well, there are two, and no, there are not three or more genders. There are only two. Yes. And... Um, so if women are not allowed to, then somebody's got to, and that's got to be a man. At church-sponsored or church-related activities or gatherings in which men are present and in which the subject matter is of a theological nature, men are to be the ones doing the teaching. And since women are not allowed to teach in a church setting where the subject matter is of a religious nature, then obviously the only ones allowed to do so, as I said, providing such instruction are men. Of course, not all men, um, but only those men whom the church and Christ through the church has deemed qualified to do that teaching. Not all men are qualified to do such teaching, only those whom Christ has called to that office and given the appropriate uh, uh, gifts and uh, qualifications. Circumstances in which this restriction of teaching to men would apply, would include, obviously, the most obvious of all, and be the first and foremost one, is this situation. Corporate worship by God's people uh, on the Sabbath or on any other day when they happen to gather together uh, as a group to worship God if it's not on a Sunday. Any such gathering, uh, worship gathering, men need to be the ones who are doing the teaching and doing the leading. A second situation where this restriction of uh, teaching to men, of, of religious teaching of a religious nature to men, would be um, apply is that of mixed-gendered Bible studies, or Sunday school classes, or the like, or any, again, any mixed-gendered church setting where the Bible is being unpacked, where it's being explained. Men need to do that according to Christ speaking through Paul in this passage. And this restriction, I didn't mention this last week, but uh, Trey pointed it out to me, this restriction of the teaching of religious content to Christian men also undoubtedly applies to situations in which future ministers of Christ's church are being theologically trained, where they are being uh, told what the Bible says and teaches on various subjects. So this would include Bible uh, colleges, but especially seminaries. Men need to be the ones doing the training, and the teaching, rather. The, uh, the expositing of the scriptures. And this is Christ, not 
just Paul's personal opinion, but he is speaking as a an apostle of Christ when he says, I do not allow, we talked about that last week, a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So he is not allowed to teach. Or, excuse me, women are, women are not allowed to teach, but men are required to do that teaching. That's the first, uh, that's the first, um, uh, thing that Christ requires of men. That they do the teaching of, of a religious content, uh, uh, and they alone. Secondly, in this passage, by implication, he also requires men and men alone to exercise spiritual leadership authority in the church. In the church. Again, it's clearly implied by what he teaches and uh, says in verse uh, 11 and 12 um, that uh, if women are not allowed to exercise authority over men in a church setting, spiritual authority, then obviously the only ones left to do that, uh, to exercise such spiritual authority, are men. And again, not all men. But only men whom uh, the church has deemed qualified to do so and in the case of uh, the exercise of spiritual authority, uh, who have also been called by the head of the church himself to do so, uh, through the church. This is why, folks, this is why our congregation here and our uh, denomination and every other biblically faithful church and denomination limits its leadership to men. Because Christ does. That's also probably one of the reasons why we don't have 400 people here today. Not the only reason, but probably one of the reasons. Some people, it sticks in their craw. And by leading, by the way, when I speak of leadership, uh, limiting, limiting leadership to men, by, leader, by leading I am referring to the two New Testament church offices which the Lord Jesus has established through the apostles, that is to say, the offices of elder and deacon. Offices, by the way, whose qualifications we will be considering in the very next chapter, uh, next week, Lord willing, uh, elders, and the week after that, uh, deacons. Those are the offices. Those are the leadership offices of the church. So, he requires these things. Verse 13 transitions to his argument why this is the case, why uh, the Lord is limiting um, teaching and ruling in the church to men. He says, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. So he is limiting, first of all, let's talk first of all about the uh, uh, teaching of religious, well, no, I just, I'm misreading my notes here. So, I just read verse 13. So the answer is, understanding what verse 13 is saying is, Christ limits this office, or these offices to men because he created the first man before he created the first woman. He's talking about uh, chronological temporal priority here of the man, Adam, over the woman Eve. He made one first and then the other. And Paul and Jesus through him clearly implies then in these passages 
uh, in this verse, rather, in verse 13, that uh, Christ, God, intends for this creational this creation order, this order of the creation of men and women, that that creation order should provide the pattern for male-female relationships in the church and, oh, by the way, yes, in the home as well. It's It was built into the way God did things in Genesis. It's baked in to the way we were created and the way in which we were created, and the, the chronology in which we were created. And by the way, Paul also appeals to the order of creation of Adam and Eve in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in support of his argument that the man is the head of the woman in the, in the family, and that the woman is to be in submission to the man's headship, to male authority. Uh, we'll look at that passage, 1 Timothy chapter 11. Not First Timothy, First Chronicles. Sorry, uh, let's try this again. Corinthians, First Corinthians, chapter thir- eleven, verse three, and then skipping down to verse eight through ten. So he's talking here about uh, public prayer, actually, in worship. But then he he he's explaining headship uh, as. Uh, and he says, uh, now I pray, I'll start in verse 2. Now I praise you because you remembered, because you remember me and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and Christ is the head, I mean, and God is the head of Christ. And then skip down to verse 8. For man, and here's his rationale, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Don't ask me to explain that last line there. But you see, the same reasoning is being applied here by Paul. In the home, uh, uh, well, actually in the church, uh, and also in the home, I would assume it applies there as well. But so, in other words, the point is, uh, and Jesus, by the way, uses creational, uh, occur- what happened in the creation to make his point about marriage. How, why marriage is between one man and one woman, because of what happened back in the garden, the way God set it up. It's a similar, not quite the same, but it's a similar idea. So, the point here, then, is... Christ and the triune God intend that Adam and Eve should serve as prototypes of all future men and women and the way they relate to one another. They should serve as prototypes. And verse 13 is speaking of the order, yes, but verse 13 in 2 Timothy is speaking of more than merely the order. And it's clear, and I'll tell you why in a moment, but it's clear that more than merely the order in which God created Adam and Eve, it's more than that that Paul has in mind. And what he has in mind with this verse is he is implicitly, by uh, by the words wording that he uses, he is implicitly appealing to the entire narrative that's found in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 13 
clearly refers to Genesis 2. Verse 14 clearly refers to Genesis 3. And I'm, I'm, we're not at verse 14 yet. But verse 13, and the, the, ways, the reason this is the case is because of the language that Paul uses. I alluded to that in Sunday school. But we can be confident that there is an allusion to the whole of what is going on in chapter 2 of Genesis because the Greek word that Paul employs here in uh, verse 13, the verb that he employs, created or formed, it's the Greek word paso, which translated created or formed, and it's the same word that is used by the Septuagint in Genesis 2, verses 7, verse 8, and verse 15. It's used three different times in Genesis chapter 2, this word plasso. And uh, the Septuagint, by the way, is the Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew Old Testament, which was used widely in Paul's day by uh, the diaspora, that is, Jews that uh, spoke Greek most of the time. And, um, and so the Septuagint was in Greek, and Paul is writing Timothy in Greek, and he's borrowing that language from the Greek Septuagint's uh, rendering of Genesis chapter 2. Uses it three, is used three different times in that chapter, that word. Uh, and so, um, so what, so Genesis chapter 2 records several details concerning Eve's creation that reinforce the point that Paul is making that Christ intends for both the teaching and ruling uh, responsibilities in the church to be limited to men. And he's alluding to those, undoubtedly to those elements, uh, those details, and, and I'll give three of them to you. First, in Genesis 2, verse 18, we're not going to turn there now, but, G, uh, but the text, Moses speaks of the fact that the woman was created because, why? Because the man needed a helper. The man needed a helper, and boy do we. In other words, the point is, the woman was created for the man highlighting Adam's priority there in Genesis as the man. Secondly, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, that, record, that verse records the fact that the woman was taken out of the man. Again, pointing to the relational priority of the man, Adam. And then thirdly, again in Genesis chapter 2, which Paul is alluding to, verse 23, that verse tells us that Adam named the new human being whom God had taken out of him, namely the woman, and he called her woman because she was taken out of man. And that naming um, act, that act of naming, is a privilege which is indicative in Scripture of dominion. The one who names exercises dominion. And Adam was exercising dominion over Eve when he named her woman, called her woman, and then later later on he, he used the word, he named her specifically Eve. So, Paul is alluding to chapter 2 with all those details in it, the whole narrative there. And so what Paul and Christ Paul wants his readers, and Christ wants you and me to recognize, he wants us to recognize that not merely Adam's creation prior to Eve, 
But the entire narrative there, the entire account in Genesis 2, argues in favor of the wisdom of Christ's decision as the head of the church to assign the leadership responsibilities in his church to men. That's verse 13. That's the reason that Paul gives um, for uh, what he has just said. Now, verse 14 fits into Paul's argument in one of two ways. And I have not been able to determine or decide in my own mind which way. So you're going to get both. Okay? So I haven't fallen down here on one side or the other for sure. I asked my family. I was wrestling with it last night. I stayed up way late. I, it, was, it was driving me crazy. But at any rate, um, so, but it is one of these two ways. And you're going to get them right now. Um, so verse 14 reads this way. And I'm going to read it not the way the New American Standard reads it, but the way uh, most of the other translations, uh, the better translations read it. And uh, Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Notice the word and. That's the key word there. And. For trying to figure out. Uh, and the and the and the the Greek there, the Greek word chi, which translates translated and, uh, can allow for both of these options in terms of how what verse thir- the relationship of verse thirteen to verse fourteen. I mean, verse fourteen to verse thirteen. So, first, verse fourteen could be providing a second distinct reason why Christian women are not allowed to teach or exercise authority over men in a church setting. It could be a second distinct reason. And that reason is because Eve was deceived. She was deceived, of course, by Satan in the fall, as opposed to Adam, who was not deceived, but who as a result of Eve's successful persuasive powers he knowingly rebelled against the commandment that God gave him not to eat. A commandment that was given before Eve was made, by the way, to him. He knowingly rebelled. He was not deceived, but Eve was. She was deceived. And that's that, that point, her deception at versus, uh, versus Adam's lack of deception is a major point that's being made there in verse 14. And if then, if verse 14 and what it says is in fact a distinct, a distinct second basis or reason for Paul's prohibition of women teaching men and exercising authority over men, if that's the case, if that's the choice, then the challenge becomes, and we're going to assume it is for the moment, then the challenge becomes determining why Eve's deception prevents women from spiritually ruling over and instructing men in the church. That's the challenge. And before I hazard, and I use that word very intentionally, a possible guess, let me clearly rule out one possibility as to why um, what's going on is going on. And that is that uh, we must rule out, and it's obvious uh, to anybody, that females are not 
intellectually inferior to men. This is that a suggestion like that is utter hogwash. And I could use other words which wouldn't be appropriate. It's hogwash. Women are just as intellectually uh, capable uh, as men, and uh, I think in most high schools you're more apt to see a woman as the valedictorian and salutatorian than, in, than, than a guy. It's been my historic observation. But while intellectual inferiority is off the table, Paul is obviously emphasizing Eve's deception, being deceived. And his emphasis on that fact that she was deceived while Adam was not seems to suggest another very politically incorrect possibility. And that is that women are, in general, more prone to arriving at erroneous understandings of the Bible and its doctrines than men are, in general. And that's a consequence of the fall and her role in it. That's hard to hear. It's hard for me to say. It's probably hard for you to hear. But if this is the second reason, and it may well be, Paul's saying, because the woman was deceived. That has had ramifications down through the centuries and the millennia for women as part of the curse. You know, uh, men abdicated. Uh, Adam stood like a dummy while Eve went after the fruit. He abdicated. She took control. She, uh, she transgressed the proper uh, roles in the family. And he let her, was happy to have her do it. That has affected humanity ever since. Men tend to abdicate. Women tend to take charge inappropriately in the household. And I think if, if this is the second reason, that's what's going on here. That men, uh, that women are, are more prone to erroneous, arriving at erroneous understandings of Scripture and its, and its teachings. But I'm not sure that's the reason. I'm not sure that's the relationship of verse 13 uh, to, what, to Paul's argument. But it's certainly a very distinct and uh, possibility that that's what's going on. There is a second one. There's a second way in which verse 14 may fit into Paul's argument. And it is suggested by Dr. George Knight, who is, uh, whose commentary is immensely helpful. And he, he, uh, he taught at Greenville Seminary. Um, and recently passed away, went to be with the Lord, but uh, he, uh, anything he says has to be given great weight. Um, and here's what Dr. Knight suggests, the relationship of verse 14 to verse 13 is. He says, this verse, verse 14, shows by a negative example, not reason, but example, this verse shows by a negative example the importance of heeding the respective roles established by God in the creation of Eve from Adam. In the inver- thus, excuse me, this adds, Knight says, this adds to verse 13 another example rather than a separate basis for Paul's argument. Thus, Paul argues not from creation 
and the fall, Knight says, but from creation, and then illustrates this argument, albeit negatively, from the fall and Eve's role in it. And Dr. Knight defends this view that I just read here, that he articulated, that he's not using both creation and the fall, but he's using uh, verse 14 is illustrative of the point he is making by what he said in verse 13. He defends that view by referring to what God said at the beginning of God's pronouncement of judgment on upon Adam after the fall, over in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 17. Remember what God said? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you are cursed. Or cursed as a ground. Because of you. Because you abdicated your role as the head of your household, because you let her take the lead when you were responsible for what you did or for what was taking place there, because you, because you abdicated your responsibilities as the head of the household, you are cursed. And that's what Paul was getting at by his Adam was created because Adam was created first and then Eve. He's getting to the, the all that that entailed, not just temporal uh, priority that he was made first before she was, but that he was to be the head. He was to be the first in terms of authority in the house and in the church. And by the way, the original home, the church was the home back then. And he is saying uh, that God's words of pronouncement of judgment, uh, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, curses the ground because of you, that that points to the fact that um, that verse 14 was is illustrative uh, of, of the point, the single overarching point, which is uh, male priority uh, and primacy in the house and in the church, uh, as evidenced by, by creational order. So then, if Knight is right, if verse 14 is merely illustrative of the point he made in verse 13, then Paul is appealing to the fall, not just creation, but also the fall as an event, now here only to the fall, as an event that demonstrates the dire consequences of reversing God-ordained roles in the house and in the church. I don't know which it is. But either way, it's it's hard to swallow for an awful lot of us. You know, uh, the option is, that's, that's an honest reading of that text. There are people that play games with it all the time. There are theologians that play games with this text. Books have been written. Terrible re- book written by the Krogers about uh, 25, 30 years ago, uh, a male uh, husband and wife team, called suffer not, I Suffer Not a Woman. Terrible because they, they explained it all the way, and it's and it's all dis it's uh, it's not honest. It's just not on, honest exegesis what they did, and there are lots of others who have followed in that same path. If you know, we have to decide: do we believe the word or not? Do we believe God wrote it or didn't He? Is this God or is this man? And God says hard things. This is amongst the hardest. I'll leave it to you to come to your own conclusions about what verse 14 means in relation to verse 13, how it relates to it.
But either way, it, it, how should I say, gets the job done. There's no, there's no doubt about the point that Paul is making is about uh, leadership in the church. Verse 15, I'm going to just say this very briefly. It's a very difficult verse to interpret. Theologians, commentators have wrestled with it for millennia. Um, and uh, it's, it, there's no perfect interpretation of it uh, that, that just solves all the problems. And there are several, a bunch. But I will simply tell you, uh, my best guess is that what uh, Paul is speaking of here, let me read it, uh, but she, a reference to the woman in the previous verse who is Eve, but she shall be, and this word can be, uh, should, is the Greek word sozo, uh, she is, shall be saved through the bearing of children, or the childbearing, that can also be translated, it's a noun actually, through the childbearing, if, she, if they, now he transitions from one woman to those whom she represents, all women, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So my best guess is uh, that what Paul is teaching here is that he is referring to spiritual salvation of Eve. Because remember, it refers, uh, it's alluding back to the woman mentioned in the previous verse, in verse 14. It's speaking of the spiritual salvation of Eve and all the women throughout, church his, or throughout history whom she typifies. And it's speaking of that, their spiritual salvation through the birth of Jesus, which is actually referred to as the childbearing, or the childbearing, or the childbirth. And the, 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 uh, the, the there, the uh, definite article, may be highlighting one particular childbearing, a reference to the Messiah, of course, Jesus. So that's my best guess. Um, so, so, to conclude... What God did and said with respect to Adam and Eve in the first few chapters of Genesis indicated what his will, what the divine will is today and always has been for men and women all the way up until the time when the world comes to an end, when Christ returns in glory. And that will specifically is in regard to headship, and submission, and who does what in that in those roles in the home and in the church. And I would suggest that the most important application that all of you and I can do, the way that you and I, our job, if you will, after hearing this um, very difficult um, passage for many to hear, our job is simply to simply and gladly respond with a yes, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this is tough. It goes against the cultural grain in ways that almost nothing else does. But as I said last week, you really don't care what man thinks. You don't care about him uh, pleasing uh, man's expectations or man's uh, human, humanity's uh, uh, preferences. Um, and we were glad you'd, you don't look to us for guidance, Lord, in how you run the universe. 
or the church. Lord, would you please take this sermon, take this passage, and help us to make peace with it if we haven't yet. Give us grace to do that, um, to acknowledge you as our, not just our Savior, but also our King, and to act as if that's the case by submitting to you. Lord, would you please also, if there's any person in this room or listening remotely who doesn't have Jesus as his or her Savior and Lord or King, uh, would you please cause such an individual now to see that Jesus is his or her only hope of escaping eternal judgment, your judgment, which they and all of us richly deserve. Please give faith to any unbelieving individual and make them a believing individual now who is listening to me. I pray this, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. And may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.